Today's scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Excuse me. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when does God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Nancy. Good morning, everybody. Would you rather me up here, down here, or up here? Do you care? Up? All right, I'm seeing people up. We're going up. All right. All right, well, good morning. Before I introduce myself and say thank you for having us and all that good stuff, I want to ask you a question based on the passage and get you thinking about it. My question is, According to this passage we just heard read that Nancy read for us, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, where is Jesus? Where is the location of Jesus based on that passage? Feel free to be checking it out, 13 through 20, as I'm going through it, think about it. The answer is not everywhere because God is everywhere. There's specifically in this passage, where is Jesus? And we'll get to that and why that's significant. So, by the way, my name is Tori. I'm the lead pastor of Terra Nova Church, and want to say again, as Pastor Rob said, thank you for having us this morning, Victorious Life Church, and I mean, truly something special is, is happening today, and I'm just privileged to be here with you and worshiping our one God together. Now, we are, we are excited of the potential of becoming one church. It's an exciting thought. It's an exciting prospect. And I was thinking, even as we were singing as one church together this morning, can they hear us outside in Troy? Can we go a little louder and have the whole city hear and get excited about what God is doing in the city of Troy? Now, as the elders have gotten together a few times and have talked about it, someone said the last time we got together, it feels a little bit like dating. We're getting to know each other, what we like, what we don't, what we agree on. Do we have the same vision and, and mission and hope as a, as a church body, and the answer seems to be a lot of yeses in there. And then someone said at the end of that meeting, it also feels like the dating is getting a bit more serious. 
And uh, you know that dating is getting more serious if you're meeting each other's families. And so here we are, <laughs> meeting the family. But I wanted to say, even if we don't become one church body in this lifetime, I was thinking, eventually we will. Eventually, the capital C Church, all of God's people throughout the whole world, throughout all generations, one of the songs we were singing, throughout thousands of generations, people from every tribe, tongue, and language are going to be worshiping God around the throne. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. That day is coming. Whether we become one church, if we do, it's a little picture, it's a little taste of that coming day, of that coming reality, when all the diversity, when all the beauty of God's people throughout all history and all nations and around the whole world come together and worship God. And all of the little things that divided us and frustrated us and the things we're going to be embarrassed about on that day are gone once and for all. And we see the King in all his glory, worshiping him as one people, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That day's coming, whether we become and get a little taste of that or not. So, I won't make you wait much longer. We're going we're gonna to dig into the passage today. I'm going to do a little bit more of an intro because Victorious Life has been going through Matthew, I believe, and not Hebrews. So I'm going to give a little bit more of an introduction uh, to Hebrews. So first of all, Hebrews was a sermon later written down for first century Hebrew Christians. And these Hebrew Christians in the first century had been faithfully following and serving Christ for, for a while. In fact, they, it had cost them. Some of them had lost their homes. Some of them, it said, joyfully stood by those who were persecuted and even thrown in prison for their faith. Their faith had cost them. But they believed that Jesus was worth it. He was worthy of everything they had, of their whole lives, of their whole devotion. But by the time this message was spoken to the Hebrew Christians in the first century, something had happened along the way. They had become, as we heard in Hebrews 5 and 6, spiritually lazy, dull of hearing. They had become a bit more stagnant and stuck in the faith. And on top of that, they had temptation after temptation to revert back, to revert back to a life that was easier before they turned to Christ, to revert back to Judaism. That was the acceptable religion at the time for them. The temple was still there. And at the time, it, it cost them dearly to continue to follow Christ. And so some of them faced that strong temptation to revert back. And so the message of Hebrews, if we had to describe it in three words, it's this. Jesus is better. That's what the speaker is trying to exhort the people to remember. Why should you press on even when it might cost you more? Why should you continue on in the faith? Because Jesus is better. Love it. Jesus is better. That's what we have a graphic here. Um, Summer Jennings made this graphic for us. And it's lovely, right? It looks great. When we do artwork for our sermon series, we have it not just because it looks, it looks great, but also to help us engage better with Scripture. And so that's what, that's what this does for us. We see 
It looks a bit like you might be reminded of the Price's right wheel here on the left. You spin it, and no matter where it lands, better than. And as we're going through the book of Hebrews, we're finding from chapter 1, we're in chapter 6 now, but it's saying in different ways the same thing over and over. Jesus is better. Understand, he's the better word. He's better than Moses. Don't revert back. He's better than the angels. He's the better human, better sacrifice, better mediator, better confidence, better, better, better. Jesus is better. And today's message is Jesus is the better anchor. We have confidence, a confident hope for the future because of Jesus. The Hebrews needed to hear it. We see it throughout this letter. We need to hear it today, do we not? Jesus is better. He's better than anything you could turn back to in your life. He's better than anything you could hold on to now. And he's better than anything in the future. He's better. He's better than He's better than your family. He's better than your finances. He's better than a relationship you so want to have. He's better than the the healing you're waiting for. He's better than fill in the blank. All of it. Jesus is better and worth it and worthy of our whole lives of joyfully following him no matter what life looks like in the meantime. Jesus is better. And we see that represented in the wheel here. You'll also see maybe in the background image there are 22 different languages represented. Different languages. All saying the same thing. Better than. It's the reminder for us that throughout all time, throughout every culture, the message is true. Jesus is better. They needed to hear it then. We need to hear it today. Jesus is better. And then finally, you see red throughout the graphic. And the red is to remind us of the once and for all, atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world. That's what the red reminds us of. And because of his sacrifice for us, because of the blood of Jesus that forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, we have a future that's not just better than life now, that is infinitely better. That when we get to the end of Hebrews and he talks about when everything's shaken and the only thing that can't be shaken remains, the kingdom of God, we will be part of that on earth because of Jesus. So, that's what we've been doing. We find ourselves in chapter 6 today and the message of Jesus is better continues. We ended off last week with verse 12 of chapter 6, which I'm going to read to you and it's the jumping off point for today's passage. So in verse 12 last week, we ended off where he said, Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. So today's passage is an example. It's a case study of somebody who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Who was that? Abraham. We're going to be reminded of the story of Abraham and Sarah and their faithfulness, their faith in the God who could do the impossible. But here's what we're going to notice as we go through the passage. And here's what we notice every time we take a good look about what the Word of God is revealing to us. It's not just about Abraham. It's not about the faith, the faithfulness of Abraham and Sarah and just focusing on them. It's always to help us see the bigger picture and the the God behind it all, the faithfulness of God, the gospel. And we go deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage does. And so let's follow along 
with what it says. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. He's our better anchor. But here's the main idea for the passage, for the direction of the sermon today. The main idea is we can have confidence that God will bring his people home. We can have confidence that God will bring his people home. How? Here's the roadmap, the, the, the direction we take that based on the text. How can we have confidence he's going to bring his people home? Two reasons. First of all, take a look back. Memory lane. Check out the past faithfulness of God to Abraham. That's verses 13 through 18. And then secondly, in verses 19 through 20, don't just look back. We, we never only look back. We can today, right now, have present hope because of Jesus Christ. The present hope of Jesus, our anchor, verses 19 through 20. That's where we're going. So, first, he brings up Abraham and the past faithfulness that God showed to Abraham in verses 13 through 18 as a reason to give us confidence today that he will bring his people home. And we see in verses 13 to 14 specifically what was that promise. And then in verse 15, we see the response of Abraham in verse 15, the patience of Abraham. And then finally, the purpose of God promising or making this oath to Abraham in the first place in verses 16 through 18. So all of this to talk about God's past faithfulness to Abraham. So first, let's see what was that promise, verses 13 through 14. I'm going to remind you of what it says. Take a look at the word of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So pause. What was the promise God gave to Abraham? We see it first in Genesis 12, and then again in Genesis 15, and then again in Genesis 17, and then again in Genesis 22. Why is it repeated again and again and again and again? Because we need to hear the promises of God again and again and again and again, just like Abraham did. So what was the promise? If you had to summarize the promise God gave to Abraham, also known as the Abrahamic covenant, covenant, if you, you can replace the word covenant if you had to with just one word, promise, what was the promise God gave to Abraham? Three words, land, seed, blessing. He shows up to Abraham and promises him land, seed, blessing. The land of Israel, which he received, which the people of God, the Israelites after them received. Secondly, seed, as in descendants, he and Sarah would be the start of a, of a vast nation. He would compare it to the stars in the sky, the sand on the sea, on the seashore, vast, large nation. When at the time of hearing it, Abraham is 75 years old, Sarah is 66 years old. They are past the age of childbearing, and yet God promises them that they're going to be the start of this nation, this great nation, descendants. And then the third promise is blessing that he would bless Abraham and make his name great, and through their descendants, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Did Abraham and Sarah 
see all of those promises fulfilled in their lifetime? No. They began to see it, but we got to wait to Hebrews 11 when it talks about we have, we have faith in God and in his promises, and while we don't see it all fulfilled this side of eternity, it will be, and it was, even though Abraham and Sarah didn't see it all fulfilled in their lifetime. Land of Israel, yes. Descendants, yes. God would bless all nations through their descendants, yes. How? Jesus Christ was one of those descendants. He's the reason we're here today. He's blessed all nations. All nations. And we're here because of him. Continuing to fulfill that promise. Quite the promise given to Abraham and to Sarah. How could Abraham believe it? How could he believe these words? And the answer is pretty simple according to the passage. Because of who said it. In verse 13, he had no one greater to swear by. Simple question, don't overthink it. Why was there no one greater to swear by? Because he's the greatest. There's no one greater. There's no one more valuable than God himself. And so he swore on his own name. Why? Hold that thought because we don't get there until verses 16 through 18. Why the promise? Why the, why the oath? Pause. Before we get to that, we have the response of Abraham in verse 15. What does it say? The patience of Abraham in verse 15. It says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Right? And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Here's the example. Here's the case study. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The case study is Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, their example. They heard God's word, they believed, they waited, and they received the inheritance. How quick of a sentence is verse 15? And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Those are nine words summarizing a very long story and a very long life. Question. Would you like at the end of your life the summary statement to be you are somebody who heard from God, believed God, and inherited the promises of God? Would you like that to be the story of your life? I would love that to be the story of every person's life in this room and more that will come and hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of our faithfulness? No. Because of the faithfulness of Christ. I want that to be my story. I want that to be your story. But somebody sitting here protests and say, excuse me, life is far more complicated than that, is it not? It's not as simple as simply hearing, believing, and then receiving. It's harder than that. It's more nuanced than that. I agree with you. And so do the Hebrews that heard this message in the first century. They are Hebrew Christians. They knew very well the story of Abraham and of Sarah. Their highs, their lows, their strengths, their weaknesses, their doubts, their confusion, the shortcuts they attempted to make. Can we talk about Abraham and Sarah for a second? Just a little more depth. Let's talk about their strengths and their weaknesses. We'll start with the strengths. First of all, you have Abraham and Sarah who don't have a Bible, by the way, have never heard past examples of God's faithfulness. They don't have a church body. 
They don't have people to go and encourage them and exhort them and help them be on the right path and pick them up when they fall down and comfort them and pray for one another and, and all of that. They don't have any of that. They have God speaking to them and promising them something. And the promise, can we be honest, is ridiculous. You're going to start a great nation. Somehow this nation is going to be the answer to the problems of the world. It's the reversal of the curse. It's hope for all nations. Your descendants are going to bless all nations of the world. You're 75 years old and your wife is 66. You have not had any children. And this is what God says. And you know what Abraham and Sarah did? They believed him. And they left everything they knew. And they followed God. Incredible. This reminds me, there's a poem called The Gate of the Year. Anyone familiar with that poem? Nobody? Well, okay, great. <laughs> so you won't know if I mess up some of it. I want to quote a small part of it. There's a poem called The Gate of the Year. And it says this. And I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light. Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. And that will be to you better than light and safer than any known way. I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread into the unknown. And he replied, walk into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. And he will be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Some of your stories right now, how that resonates in your life. Where you can't see what God is doing and how he's going to answer your prayers and where has he been and where is he leading me it is safer to follow him even when you don't know any of the answers than any other direction in your life they walked into the unknown and they held on to this faith for 25 years before the first promised descendant of Abraham and Sarah was born. Incredible strengths. But they had weaknesses too. It wasn't as simple as we heard God's word, we believed, and we inherited the promises of God. Nope. I didn't even write down the examples of Abraham lying about who Sarah was because of times that they were in danger for their life. I didn't even write that one down, but just that happened. Mega weaknesses, okay? But on top of that, Fast forward 11 years. Abraham was 75 initially when the promise is given. Now he's 86. He's 86 years old. His wife is 77. And what do they do? They waited not only a decade, a decade and one year before they said, you know what? Maybe God didn't mean exactly what he said. He said we'd have descendants. But we've waited 11 years. We're not getting any younger. Why don't we try with Hagar, a maidservant of Sarah? 
Fast forward again another 13 years. This is 24 years after the initial promise to Abraham. He is 99 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. And they, one more time, God tells them, by this time next year, you're going to have the promised son. Almost a quarter century after the initial promise. And at this time, by this time, the response to that is laughter. Sarah laughed. But don't go jumping on Sarah. Abraham laughed a few chapters ago about the same thing. It's both. At that time, after all that waiting, it was a little funny to think that God would actually answer his promise, that he would fulfill it and come through. And yet, he did. (laughs) He did. The point is, it was a battle for them. It wasn't as easy as hear it, believe it, wait. There was struggles. There were highs and lows. There was confusion. There were doubts. There were hard times. It sounds a bit like us, doesn't it? I'm not 99 years old with a ton of history of how God has worked in my life. I've got some, though. And I can tell you in my life, it's been a struggle. It's been a battle. Some days you don't want to do it. Some days you want to just give in to an easier life. God, you've gifted me in this way. You've called me to do this. Guess what looks more appealing this week? (laughs) Something else. Even last night... (laughs) I'm trying to go over the message, and you can, my wife Anna's back there. I practice on her um, every now and then and get feedback, which is incredibly helpful. I tried to get through the message a couple times, just couldn't do it. It just wasn't there. I was like, it was, it felt great on Thursday. Now it's Saturday night. I'm like, what are, oh my gosh. Just a struggle. It's a battle. Even in ways that God clearly seems to have called you and equipped you, You've been, you've been serving people, you've been serving the church, volunteering, helping. There's still going to be battles and struggles and highs and lows and waiting on God. It's just, it's life. But we're not alone. We're not alone. We have examples like Abraham and Sarah and many others in Scripture to look back on and see the faithfulness of God through their lives. And we don't just have them, we have each other. It said earlier in in Hebrews, every day, encourage somebody, exhort somebody, help each other walk out this faith we have in Christ. We have examples from the past. We have each other now. But all of that is to point us, not to ourselves and look deeper within you for the strength that's always been there. No, it's not to point ourselves to ourselves. (laughs) It's to point to the one greater. It's to the point to the faithful one, the one who's always faithful and trustworthy and never lies and has the power to fulfill every word he's spoken. And that's what the passage gets our attention on in verses 16 through 18. The purpose of God's oath to Abraham. Let me remind you of those verses. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. What is happening here? I have a few questions. Question number one. 
Why are there promises or oaths in the first place? Why? Why do we need to promise anything? Don't overthink it. Because people aren't always trustworthy, right? Because we lie. Because there's this moral disease going around since the fall that you can't, you can't just trust everybody 100% all the time. And so we created these things called promises. Are you really going to do what you said? What are you going to swear on? What do people swear or take oaths on? The answer is something bigger, greater, more valuable than ourselves, right? You never hear somebody say, I swear on a gnat. I swear on this chair that I'm sitting on, that I will fulfill. It's always something perceived that's greater, more valuable than themselves. And if I don't fulfill what I said, may that greater thing that I cherish and value so much be cursed or die or something terrible happen to it. And we put our word on it in that way. So back to the question from before, what can God take an oath on then? What's greater than God? Same answer as before. Nothing. No one. And so what did he do? He swore on himself. I agree with a bunch of the commentators that point our, direct, our attention to Genesis 15, of when God made this, he confirmed the promise given to Abraham of the land, seed, the blessing. Yes, you will have these descendants, and somehow it's gonna, the, your descendants will bless all nations of the earth. And to confirm that promise, the way that people confirmed covenants, it's literally called to cut a covenant when you confirm a covenant, is they would take a bunch of animals, they would divide them in half, they would make this bloody pathway, and then both parties would walk through the bloody pathway saying what they took an oath on, what they promised, I will fulfill what I said, and as they walk through the bloody parts, as if to say, if I don't fulfill what I said I would do, may I become like one of these. May I become like one of these. I just, I don't... <laughs> this passage in Genesis 15, it's one of the clearest depictions of the gospel. And I, I heard it taught maybe six or seven years ago by a pastor named Timothy Keller. And Timothy Keller passed away two days ago. And there are a few people that I would say, should I read this book that so-and-so wrote? And I'll just, in case you haven't read much of his work and how, how well he just brings our attention to the gospel, to Christ, I would say, whatever book it is, just read it. <laughs> just read it. So grateful for his life and ministry. Okay, so the pathway, the bloody animals, walking through the parts, confirming the promise. If I don't fulfill what I said, may I become like one of these. And God, even though he didn't have to, we talked about this in our, in our small group the other day, how great, how much does God care about us that he shows us in ways we can understand his trustworthiness, in ways we can grasp. And so what did God do in Genesis 15? He got Abraham to get the animals, divided them in half, made the pathway. I did this a couple years ago, and we asked one of the Cuthbertson kids for their stuffed animals, and they were so appreciative of that, and I made sure I get them back to him. And he's probably like 20 years old now, little, little, little uh, Johnny. Sorry. So I don't have a pathway here. But what, what happened? 
Instead of God walking through the pathway with Abraham, confirming his promise, he put Abraham to sleep. Genesis 15. He put Abraham to sleep. And then God and God alone walked through the animal parts. As if to say, God was saying, if I don't fulfill my promise, may I become like this. May God die. May God be cursed. Why is this one of the clearest pictures of the gospel? Because when Jesus is hanging on the cross and dying for the sins of the world, cursed, it's not because of his unfaithfulness, it's because of ours. And he went willingly and took the curse, took the wrath of God for what I've done wrong in my life, for what you've done wrong in your life. God took it for us. The faithful one hung there and died for us. Praise the Lord. Our hope is in the God who made this oath, the God who cannot lie, and the God who has the power to fulfill all of his promises. That's what verse 18 is getting to. It might look a little confusing. Why does it say, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What are those two unchangeable things? God's character, first of all. He cannot lie. The power of God to fulfill what he said. And secondly, the oath that he made to Abraham as he's reminding us of his faithfulness that he showed to Abraham. But it wasn't just for Abraham. We see in verse 17, it's for those who are heirs of the promise, those who have been grafted into the family of God, the, the spiritual children of Abraham. How can we know that's us? How can we know we're children of God, part of the family of God, that can have faith in this promise? Well, the question for you is, are you the person he's describing in this passage? Verse 18, those who have fled for refuge. That's what a Christian is. People who have fled for refuge. Who have fled to God for refuge. Who have gone to him, the one who has paid for our sins, who has endured the wrath of God so that we have refuge in him from the very wrath of God for our sins. It's really that simple. Have you fled to him? If you have, we can have, as it says in verse 18, strong encouragement. That's why God made the promise. Not because he had to, but because he wants to give all of those who have fled for refuge in Christ strong encouragement for the future. A hope that we can hold on to. I was hearing someone share a a message on this passage, and he said, think about kings throughout history. How much have they cared about their people having hope for the future or strong encouragement? It's like they care, just do what I said now. <laughs> but the king of kings wants his people to have hope, to have strong encouragement for the future. That's the God that we have. So when we look back at verses 13 through 18, we're reminded of the faithfulness of God that he showed to Abraham in the past. 
but he doesn't want us to only think about the past and be encouraged by his faithfulness in the past, but now to have hope in the present living Lord Jesus. The present hope of Jesus is in verses 19 through 20. Stay with me. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Here's where we get the title, Better Anchor. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why can we have hope? Why can we believe that God will fulfill all of his promises, including the one that he's going to bring all of his children home, all of us who have taken refuge in Christ, who simply turn from our sins and believe in him. He's going to bring us home. We have hope in that. Hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And he's saying, here's why you can have hope for the future. Look at Jesus. He's like our anchor. When he's talking about Jesus as our anchor, he's not talking about news anchors. <laughs> he's talking about the nautical term anchor. Nautical term anchor. What is that? I think, I think we all have an idea of what, a, what an anchor is. Okay. It's a, usually a metal, very heavy device that's got a chain or a rope that's attached to a ship or a boat and you throw it overboard and it sinks to the bottom and it keeps your boat from rocking too much or getting off course or sinking. That's what an anchor is. And anchors imply that there's going to be winds and there's going to be waves and there's going to be storms that threaten to take that ship off course or to sink it. But what this passage tells us is that Jesus is our sure and steadfast anchor, not of our ship or our boat for any sailors here, for our very souls. He and he alone is the anchor for our lives. That's what he's telling us here. He's our anchor. That's why hope looks like an anchor in this passage. But now let me come back to the first question I asked you at the beginning of the, of the message today. Where is Jesus in this passage? Where is he? Where is our anchor? Before I get to the answer, let me talk about nautical anchors again. When you think about anchors, usually you think about throwing them overboard. They descend to the bottom. They keep the boat sturdy, steady. But do you know where else anchors go? horizontally. When a boat or a ship gets next to shore, the sailors will pick up the giant anchor together and bring it horizontally onto a reef or the shore or the dock to keep it steady next to the shore. But one place that anchors never go is up. Never put it down and then it goes up. But what this passage is telling us, what God's word is telling us, is that Jesus Christ, our anchor, is not down below or horizontally on earth somewhere. Our anchor is in the very heart of heaven. So let's get there. Because you might say, but look what it says. It says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That doesn't sound like heaven. That doesn't sound like glory. It sounds like a room with a curtain. 
So what are you talking about? He's referencing the temple of God. The temple of God was the house of God that the people of God were instructed to build. And within the house of God, the temple, there were two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. And it was divided by a curtain or a veil. And the holy of holies, the room that it's saying Jesus went into behind the curtain, was the closest anyone could get to God before Jesus came, before the new covenant. Before he came, that was the closest anyone could get to God. And the high priest, the, the person that represented the people of God, was only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to, make us, to bring the blood of the sacrifice into that room for the forgiveness of the sins of all his people for the whole year. One time, once a year, one person. Jesus, when he was on earth, did not go into the Holy of Holies on earth. So why is it saying that? It's saying that because Jesus went into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly temple in which the earthly one, we're going to read a little bit later in Hebrews, is merely a shadow, a representation of. He went into the real thing in heaven and that's where he is as our anchor for our souls. Are you following that? He's in heaven. He's in the heart of heaven as our anchor, our spiritual anchor in Christ, ascended. He's with the Father himself on our behalf, and we are attached to him, if you will, with a great cord or a great rope in which God will not let go of. He will keep us. Anchors imply there's going to be winds, there's going to be waves, there's going to be storms that you think at times are going to get you off path or sink you to the bottom. And he's telling us here, have hope. Direct your faith toward the future. God will bring us home. He will. He's there. The winds and the waves, they hurt. He never said it wouldn't hurt. He said it won't move us. He will keep us. He's gone before us. Verse 20, the pioneer, the forerunner of our salvation. He's already home. That's how we can have confidence. Jesus is already there. And when heaven and earth are reunited, when the king brings the kingdom of God fully and permanently on earth, we will be with him in glory. And we can have confidence of that because of the very anchor of our souls, Jesus, who's already there. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And Jesus said in John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. He wants us to be with him. And he's going to make it happen. That's good news. That is great news. Now, before I land the plane, some of you might be thinking, you have mentioned Melchizedek four or five times now in these passages. And you have never gone into depth of who he was 
and why that's significant and how that teaches us more about the depths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just in case you've been waiting for that, next week, chapter 7, you're going to get a whole mouthful of Melchizedek. I love the laughter. You know what the laughter means? It means so many of you know your Bibles, and I just love to hear that. Chapter 7, all about Melchizedek and how that relates to Christ and the depth of the gospel and how it, the richness of the glory of Jesus, how he can be our king and our high priest. So wait till next week. Lots and lots of Melchizedek. Coming. Don't worry. So here's how I want to end today. I am very confident in conversations I've had with elders at Victorious Life Church. You guys are a praying church. We're a praying church too. And we have been, I've been a bit overwhelmed by the way God has been leading us to be a church that focuses more and more on prayer. Because you know what happens when we pray? A lot happens. <laughs> Not going to do a whole message on that. It takes the focus off of ourselves and onto King Jesus. The Spirit of God presses on us, urges us, convicts us, encourages us, comforts us to go to Christ. And that's what we're going to do. After the service today, when the songs are done and the, met, the, the service is over, there will be people up here somewhere from Victorious Life Church, Terra Nova Church, that are, would love to pray with you. And if you're here and you're hearing this message about an anchor for your soul, Jesus Christ, and you know very well, you don't have that anchor for your soul. You don't have that assurance of your future. You don't have that hope. You've made your anchor something so much less than than him. Please know there will be people here ready to pray with you about that. And if you're here, like many of us, who have given our lives to Christ, but the winds and the waves and the storms, they are so real. And you're at a time where you would just love prayer for something in your life, no matter what it is. It might not be at all related to the message today. It might have someone else in your life that you want to bring before the Lord and pray for. You might want to pray for this church, for this city, whatever. Whatever you want prayer for, come up after the service and receive prayer. And if you feel more comfortable praying with someone next to you on the chair, wherever, do that too. We want to be a praying church. And so you're welcome to do that. But let me pray as the band comes up and we continue to worship the Lord. Father, you are so good. And your promises are sure. And God, you didn't have to take an oath. You didn't have to swear on your name. But Lord, we know you did that for us so that we might have strong encouragement. Those who have taken refuge in you, those who are heirs of the promise. It wasn't just for Abraham. It wasn't just for the disciples you were speaking to in the first century. It was for us, people all around the world, who all we have to do is take refuge in you. Thank you for your promise. And thank you for wanting us to be encouraged and have confidence for the future. Lord, would you do your work in our lives, in our church's lives, in our family's lives, in our own lives, in our own hearts. Thank you for your faithfulness.
Thank you for your faithfulness, God. And continue to lead us one day at a time. As we continue even now to sing to you, to speak to you. And in your name, in the love for your name, serve each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.